this evening, um, I would like to talk about uh, the strangeness of things. And for me, this um, might be a rather odd title for a talk, but it's been very central to what uh, stands out for me <clears throat> in the Zen uh, tradition. And let me start with a, um, with a historical story. Many of you have probably heard of Dogen. He was the founder of the, of the Japanese Soto Zen school. He lived in the 13th century, I think. He spent uh, 18 months in China training with a Chan master and um, gaining some insight. He said his body and mind fell away, whatever that means. When he came back to Japan, uh, he was asked, well, what did you learn? And he said, I learned that the eyes are horizontal and the nose is vertical. <laughs> And I've always been very struck by that answer. Um, I don't really presume to understand what he had on his mind at the time, but um, to me it strikes me as a very um, poignant remark about the, uh, the sheer fact of um, human existence. Um, it's it, it's it's so utterly banal, at one level, to say such a thing, and yet at the same time, it points to a fact that is so obvious, and yet at the same time, when we reflect upon it, terribly strange, and odd. It's as though Dogen, in such a remark. Um, wakes us up from taking such things for granted and highlights uh, the fact that that is the case, that the eyes are horizontal and the nose is vertical. Another saying, this is one of the classical koans, that we find in, the, in a collection called the Blue Cliff Record, attributed to a Chinese uh, Chan teacher who was known as Layman Pang. And uh, the koan in this case is just a single sentence. And the sentence is, good snowflakes, they don't fall anywhere else. And again, that's one of those phrases that um, I've pondered and been puzzled by and inspired by for many, many years. Again, I don't quite know why. Good snowflakes, they don't fall anywhere else. And it's these kinds of um, comments 
that um, somehow distinguish uh, Chinese or East Asian Buddhism from its Indian predecessors and counterparts. You won't find any such language as this in the Pali Canon. You won't find it, um, with perhaps some exceptions in the um, Vajrayana traditions, um, in the Tibetan schools either. It's a different way of somehow regarding the world. What happened, I think, when Buddhism went to China is that it encountered a tradition that was already um, uh, a very rich philosophical, literary, poetic culture with an extraordinary sensitivity to the uh, specifics of the world, the detail of the world. The Indian tradition is rather different. The Indian tradition, whether it be Buddhism or, or Hinduism or Jainism, tends to present uh, the Dharma uh, in a rather more abstract language. The Indians have a great penchant for metaphysics, a great love of abstract ideas, you know, emptiness or Buddha nature. Terms that um, can be very rich, can be very inspiring, but are always at many, many steps removed from the nitty-gritty nuts and bolts specifics of actual experience. You don't find uh, references to particular objects like snowflakes or a look at the human face as just eyes going one way, nose going the other. And if you've read the Zen literature, be it in poetry, where we have these beautiful haiku, what's striking about them, particularly if you're used to the more abstract language of Indian, Theravada, Tibetan Buddhism, is that their concentration on the specific. Um, frogs and brooms and bowls and teacups and leaves of bamboo. The attention seems to be deliberately um, pulled away from abstract ideas and focused uh, relentlessly, um, almost shockingly at times, on the tiny specific details of human life. I was uh, trained um, as a Buddhist monk initially in the Tibetan tradition, which is very much the inheritor of the great Indian uh, movements of thought and practice that flourished until about the 8th century in India. Um, and I, I gained an enormous amount from this training. But one of the experiences I had that somehow served as a point of rupture um, personally between my involvement in this very philosophical tradition and perhaps my own sort of deeper but unstated yearnings as a young man 
was um, a time I remember very clearly. I was in Dharamsala, where the Dalai Lama lived and still lives. And I was walking from the hut I lived in, in the uh, hills behind the village, um, to get some water from a tap. We didn't have running water. We had to walk about 100, 150 yards through a little trail, through the forest to get to a tap. And I remember walking back with a bucket full, it was a blue bucket, a blue bucket full of water. And um, it was dusk, it was the end of the day. And suddenly I was overwhelmed by a sense of the sheer strangeness of what was happening. Again, it's difficult to put that sort of thing into words, but it was something that uh, overcame me quite out of the blue um, as a kind of a shock. And um, for the first time, at least for the first time that I was conscious, um, made me aware that um, it was really extraordinarily odd that all of this was happening at all. The, the trees and the path and the blue sky and the mountains in the background and the weight of the water in the bucket in my arm, um, all of it struck me um, as, as profoundly weird. And it was one of those moments that probably didn't last in all its intensity for very long, but it had the effect of somehow uh, jarring my whole uh, sense of, of who I was and what mattered. And in this particular case, you know, how did this experience relate to what I was studying and practicing with my Tibetan teachers? Um, I had no language um, to express that in Tibetan. I tried uh, with some Tibetan lamas and just couldn't get it across. Um, they thought it was a very strange thing to say. It didn't make any sense. Maybe I was, you know, didn't have a good enough grasp of the language to express it, but it was somehow um, didn't fit with the overall view of the world in which I was being uh, inducted at that point in my life. And yet at the same time, I intuitively um, felt that it was uh, a deeply important and significant moment in my, I hate this word, spiritual life, religious life, or let's just say my human life. And it's never left me. And in the end, it was the catalyst that drew me to the practice of Zen. I spent quite some time after that uh, experience uh, seeking out, both in Buddhist and in uh, non-Buddhist literature, both of secular and, and religious texts, um, passages that would somehow shed light on such an experience or the significance of such an experience. Uh, 
as I've already uh, suggested, it was only really in East Asian traditions, uh, particularly Chan or Zen or Son, where I found a language that seemed to uh, resonate at the same kind of pitch. Uh, I also found a great deal in our own Western tradition. Um, at the time I was reading uh, existentialist philosophy and I found a number of passages in, in Martin Buber in his book I and Thou which again uh, seemed to be giving voice to the same sense in an odd way. I found it in Heidegger later too and Heidegger um, opens one of his books with the famous question, why is there anything at all rather than nothing? <coughs> and again, when I first read that, it had the same kind of shivers up the spine feeling. <coughs> why is there anything at all rather than nothing? And uh, more recently, I found that this is a question that goes right back to Socrates in the Western tradition, uh, where Socrates, in one of the dialogues recorded by Plato, speaks of a wonder as the source of philosophy, the fact that the world becomes questionable to you is the beginning of philosophy itself. But remember, philosophy for Socrates didn't mean uh, going to a university and studying some abstract logical propositions. But philosophy was a way of life. Philosophy was an ongoing inquiry into what it means to be human, what it means to lead a good life. And the beginnings of that um, was the experience of being uh, struck down by wonder that there is anything at all. But perhaps the most, um, uh, the most uh, explicit uh, passage in any book, East or West, that I've read, um, that somehow gives voice to that experience I now had more than 30-odd, 40 years ago, is a, a verse from Lucretius, which I only came across three or four years ago. Um, Lucretius, uh, as you probably know, was a, a Roman uh, poet, uh, an Epicurean, a follower of, Epic, of Epicurus, of whom only one thing is known, and that is he was the composer of a book called On the Nature of Things. It's a beautiful poetic work um, that tries to articulate the uh, the sensibility of Epicurean philosophy, written about 50 BC. Uh, this is the passage. Behold the pure blue of the heavens and all that they possess, the roving stars, the moon, the sun's light, brilliant and sublime. Imagine if these things were shown to men now for the first time, suddenly, and with no warning, what could be declared more wondrous than these miracles no one before had dared believe could even exist? 
nothing, nothing could be quite as remarkable as this. So wonderful would be the sight. Now, however, people hardly bother to lift their eyes to the glittering heavens. They are so accustomed to the skies. Now even here there is still the rather classic imagery of the sublime, the night sky, the stars and so forth. But I feel that this uh, passage could just as well um, uh, speak uh, with the example of, of what we're experiencing right now in this room. I don't really see any difference, to be honest. What if this, this room, us sitting in it, listening to this talk, aware of the light and the birds outside, if this were shown to us now for the first time, suddenly and with no warning, what could be declared more wondrous? And it's that sense that um, I feel is very much um, evoked in uh, Chan Buddhism, uh, in Son practice. And what I feel that we're doing here on such a retreat as this, at least this is my own, obviously, personal interpretation of this, is um, to uh, allow ourselves uh, to be open to our experience and that of the world uh, from such a perspective, as though we were experiencing this for the very first time. Of course, there is an element here of what we might call mysticism, uh, which is a very charged and, I think, rather pro problematic term. But it's a, what in theology would be called a mysticism of imminence rather than a mysticism of transcendence. In other words, the mystical is not something that is somehow beyond the world of everyday detail, which is often, I think, what is suggested in, in, in Indian Buddhism, that we somehow have to see through the veil of appearance to get to the true reality. But rather, it's a mysticism that is uh, one that is totally um, embedded in the senses, uh, what we see, hear, smell, taste, touch now. Uh, in this moment. It's as though, rather than looking for the, uh, the mystical experience beyond, or below, or above, our everyday experience, it's seeing the everyday as though for the first time. And that, I think, is again very much at the heart of the uh, Chan uh, tradition. And perhaps many of us uh, can uh, find examples in our own lives where uh, such a sense of uh, the strangeness of things has broken through to us. Uh, it could be when we're hiking in the, in the mountains, it could be when we're in love, it could be just at a random moment where the mind, for whatever reasons, just stops. And we see things fleetingly, perhaps, um, as 
as profoundly um, unusual and unsettling. Perhaps in our culture, particularly uh, today, this comes through perhaps more in poetry than in any, than in any other form of literature. A poetry that somehow is no longer talking about anything, but is actually sculpting with language the very experience itself. And then we probably all have lines of poetry or, or, or poems that we particularly like that have this, this strange quality of evoking that sense of the imminent uh, wonder of life itself. But I think also, um, at least in my own case, I find this same sense is evoked through um, the, uh, the, the way in which life is revealed through the natural sciences. I remember in <clears throat> the newspaper not so long ago there was a photograph, obviously a magnified photograph, of, an, of, a, of, of a, a pin. And at the tip of the pin was um, the first eight cell divisions of a fertilized embryo. Um, you know, magnified, obviously, to a huge degree. Um, and that, too, had the effect of somehow stopping me in my tracks uh, to imagine how that eight little spherical um, dots joined together on the tip of that pin could somehow um, uh, mutate and develop and evolve into a human being. Uh, that, to me, is, is, is just is so weird and strange and mind-stopping, even though now we can probably describe it in quite some detail, the sheer fact of that um, goes beyond anything that I can comprehend. And we can extend it the other way too, the millions of galaxies in the, in the universe, um, or the way we now understand the extraordinary interconnectedness of different forms of life and creatures uh, operating in the biosphere. And yet, as Lucretius says, we've become so familiar with this uh, way of looking at the world that it no longer really stirs us or moves us. We, don't, we just shrug our shoulders and say, oh, that's interesting. And I think one of the questions that uh, I've often asked is, is why are we not amazed? at life? Why does the world sometimes, maybe for much of the time, strike us as rather mundane and rather familiar and a little bit boring and we have to entertain ourselves by getting our kicks by some, you know, more exceptional kinds of experiences? Why is it that we can't be amazed uh, by the sheer fact that anything is happening at all? And perhaps one Buddhist answer to that question, although I'm, again, not citing any classical texts to support this, uh, would be that um, 
qualities like um, uh, opinionatedness, attachment, fear, hatred, um, jealousy, insecurity, anxiety. It seems that all of these things that Buddhist tradition is struggling to come to terms with and in a sense liberate us from are precisely those things that render the world uh, dull and opaque and, un and uninteresting. And if we were to translate that into the language of, say, biology, then perhaps um, you know, these, um, these deeply embedded drives, which are presumably um, the legacy of our ancestors' struggles for survival, um, have been successful um, in, in keeping those kinds of what we would now call mystical experiences at bay. Perhaps we fail to uh, be astonished by life because we are programmed not to be. Or we're programmed, let's say, to uh, have other ends than that. So I've often thought of um, Buddhist meditation, and again, not just Zen, but let's say the practice of mindfulness, uh, is actually a way of, uh, of stopping and paying attention to the specific detail of our lives. So this very early Buddhist tradition that cultivates uh, attention and mindfulness um, is also a way, I feel, of um, uh, eroding uh, the, um, the familiarity of things by learning to pay attention to the breath, to the sensations in the body, to the sounds we hear, without any other agenda. Just noticing, just stopping and watching and hearing and focusing. Part of that process leads, I feel, not to a kind of cognitive insight, which is often how Indian tradition would present this, We'd gain insight into impermanence or, or suffering or not-self. But it also, I feel, has an aesthetic corollary. In other words, um, when we pay attention in this more contemplative way, um, it opens the world up as, uh, uh, as surprising, as, as unfamiliar. Familiar but unfamiliar. Ordinary, but extraordinary. And I've always felt that on meditation retreats, that as the mind becomes more still, uh, as you start to pay closer attention to what's going on, uh, that has the uh, effect of somehow allowing the world and experience to be somehow more radiant, more enriched, um, more... Um, ambiguous uh, and also at the same time somehow utterly fascinating I think it's a it's often noted on retreats that after a while you be, find yourself able to contemplate the, the the patterning in a leaf for example um, in a way that you wouldn't have perhaps done the week before 
when the mind was preoccupied with so much other stuff. So I think even though um, in, uh, in early Buddhism we don't find a language of uh, aesthetics, of beauty, um, in Zen uh, this comes very much into the foreground. And I don't think it's accidental that of all of the Buddhist traditions, the one that has given the most uh, importance to uh, the arts uh, is the East Asian traditions, again, particularly Chan and Zen. It was quite um, uh, refreshing and also slightly surprising when training in uh, a monastery in Korea that many of the monks uh, would also be calligraphers or painters or they'd work in the garden or they'd do tea ceremony or something like that. And this wasn't considered to be a sort of, a sort of an adjunct to one's practice. It was the practice. There's a famous Chan saying which says, the taste of tea and the taste of Zen or contemplation are one. There's no split, um, uh, as there sometimes is in, in, in other forms of Buddhism, where art is a sort of, is it, the, is it in, the, in the service of the religion, as creating beautiful tankas and paintings and statues, but that's not really what the monks should be focusing on. In East Asia, um, that kind of uh, split uh, is simply not there that there is uh, intrinsic to the whole practice a sense that it refines your aesthetic awareness. So, going back to that uh, question, um, one might extend it also to uh, holding on to beliefs, religious beliefs doctrinal beliefs, holding on to a view of the world as being correct, um, claiming to know what is uh, the truth, uh, holding any kind of, uh, uh, of picture of the world and giving that a kind of privileged uh, status is arguably another way of anesthetizing ourselves to the wonder of the specific. And one of the things that particularly uh, draws me to the Son tradition um, is that it's far more concerned with putting things into question than it is with uh, providing a set of answers. And in this sense, it kind of inverts the, um, what, well, what is often the sort of standard way in which religious institutions behave. Namely, you go to them with maybe considerable anxiety or doubt or sense of meaninglessness or some personal suffering. And the religion is successful when it provides you with a belief system and a set of practices that can somehow assuage uh, those sufferings. And so you become uh, a believer. And although 
a considerable amount may be gained in making such a leap of faith. I think at the same time, there can often be something rather more fundamental that is lost. In other words, when we go, uh, when, when we experience that, those moments of existential uncertainty and unease and so on, uh, although it may not be comfortable, it's definitely very real. Uh, it's certainly something that uh, we can't ignore or deny. And it's not just second-hand knowledge, we feel it in our guts. We feel it in our bones. And I think much of the function of uh, religion is to um, uh, find a way of getting us out of that uncomfortable feeling and giving us the consolation of faith and belief. And of course, a lot of people in our world are desperately in need of consolation. I have nothing against that. But my own way through Buddhism somehow has moved from a period when I was much younger and needed some structure, some training, some philosophy that would actually give me a mooring in the world itself to one in which I found that that mooring became more and more of a rope that was kind of holding me down. Perhaps it gave a certain uh, foundation or basis for cultivating another way of seeing the world. I suspect it probably did. But at the same time, it began to feel like a bit of a straitjacket, a bit of a prison. And what I was uh, drawn to in, in, in Son practice when I first read about it was precisely the fact that it privileged questions over answers and explicitly declared that the core practice was the cultivation of great doubt. And I think Martine mentioned this this morning and we'll probably come back to it tomorrow. But the approach, therefore, is not to seek to somehow uh, neutralize or overcome that existential uncertainty and doubt, but actually to cultivate it, to honor it as uh, a point of truthfulness and honesty that um, uh, can actually take you somewhere, can actually be a basis for uh, a kind of awakening. And the passage I think Martin quoted this morning was great doubt, great awakening, little doubt, little awakening, no doubt, no awakening. In other words, um, there's recognized uh, to be a, a very uh, clear correlation between the pitch at which your um, existence is a question for you in the way that resonates in your body with the kind of understanding or insight that you may then gain. If your questions and doubts are of a purely uh, intellectual nature, then 
their resolution, likewise, will be intellectual. But if your questions and your doubts are somehow visceral, if they actually uh, reverberate through your body, or as they say in Zen, through the 84,000 pores of your skin and the marrow of your bones, if your question, your koan, your huadu, becomes like a red-hot ball in your stomach that you cannot uh, vomit out, <clears throat> that is uh, a different order of doubt altogether. Here we have something uh, physical, uh, embodied, um, uh, right down in the very core of ourselves. And that's the kind of pitch at which a corresponding awakening insight uh, could likewise be possible. So in Zen there's very little in a way that you can object to. Uh, there really are no um, beliefs or metaphysics that you are obliged to adhere to uh, because the emphasis uh, is entirely upon the cultivation of uncertainty and doubt. Of course, in practice, Zen Buddhism has its own metaphysical beliefs and so forth and so on, and that has developed. But if you go back to the early uh, records of the Tang period, in other words, 8th, 9th century in China, you find that there is a, a, a very um, consistent uh, suspicion and uh, uh, rejection uh, of any kind of ready-made Buddhist answer. And a lot of texts which are actually very um, using very, very strong language to actually dismiss and reject uh, the authority of any kind of orthodoxy, Buddhist or otherwise. This, of course, is held in a form of contemplation. It's not just a kind of a, a, an adolescent rebellion against authority, because this is a practice that is um, uh, rooted in a high degree of discipline and training and vows and, you know, what we're doing here, for example. Um, in other words, this doubt somehow needs to be held it needs to be contained. Perhaps it's a bit like a crucible in which a, a, a chemical reaction can take place. It holds the space for that reaction to happen. So, to sort of bring this back to what we're doing here, um, I feel that this question, what is this? Or it could be another form of words, it really doesn't matter. The, the important point is whether uh, that question or another question uh, can provoke or trigger within us um, that kind of uncertainty and questioning on the one hand, and on the other hand, a deepening of a sense of curiosity and wonder at the sheer fact that anything is going on at all. 
And in the course of a retreat like this, we will probably spend a fair bit of time with the usual uh, difficulties we have on retreat, the mind wandering, we're feeling very drowsy and very uh, dull sometimes, maybe a bit bored, a bit fed up, to try to work through uh, those periods, those uh, very, you know, very natural, in a way, experiences that meditation brings up. Uh, and try, as it were, to clear a space uh, within us where even though those wandering thoughts and lethargic attitudes remain, um, try to open up within us an ability at least to ask, well, what is this that's going on? To allow that experience, even that uncomfortable experience, to nonetheless be questionable. You know, what is this that's happening now? To try to turn it into a focus of curiosity and interest. Rather, as the rather habitual way we do, is we, we segregate our experience into the parts of it that are acceptable and that we like. And on retreat, we probably have our own list of things we'd like to be happening. I'd like to be still and quiet and at peace and a little bit blissed out. But I don't want to feel, you know, bored or have a chronic pain in my lower back. That's not acceptable. But whether we're doing mindfulness practice or whether we're doing this kind of in-questioning practice, we somehow have to find a frame of mind that is at least one millimeter wider than anything that goes on within us. To be either aware of it, in a kind of acceptance and embrace, but I would suggest that that acceptance and that embrace is also, or can also be, a kind of curiosity, a kind of puzzlement at the fact that it's happening at all. And this is what I feel for myself the son or Zen approach brings to the practice of mindfulness or awareness is it brings this edge of curiosity, this edge of a puzzlement, this edge of confusion. Not confusion as something we need to avoid, but a healthy confusion, a, a deep kind of not knowing which is not ignorance, but is just an incapacity to, uh, to know what's going on, to know what life is about. And instead of uh, feeling embarrassed about that or feeling that we, you know, we're very educated, cultured people, we've got it all sorted out, instead to actually recognize that if you are able to ask a question, if you're able to say, what is this? you are tacitly admitting that you don't know what this is. Otherwise, you wouldn't ask the question, or the question would just be meaningless. So to say, what is this, is also uh, silently to acknowledge, I don't know. I don't know what this is. I don't have a clue. And it's that, uh, that not knowing which I feel is the, uh, 
the necessary counterpart uh, to awareness, to questioning in particular, um, that somehow gives our meditative uh, uh, awareness uh, a, another dimension, a, a kind of a three-dimensionality, I think, opens up. And of course, emotionally, we might experience that as a kind of humility, uh, a, a recognition of, of, in a sense, how uh, you know how how insignificant our short existence is in the grand scheme of things. Uh, but that insignificance is not a sort of a, a denial of what is humanly possible but rather a willingness to be open to what is immeasurable and what exceeds us almost infinitely. Um, I'm going to stop here. And, and tomorrow morning uh, in the instruction, I'll go more into the, <clears throat> the practice of... Uh, the what is this, but um, we have a few minutes uh, if anyone would like to uh, make a comment or ask a question. Yeah, at the back. Yes, uh, with that question, um, what I, mean, this one, I mean, you kind of answered perhaps what I was going to ask was the Sorry, what are the... Doesn't that lead to a continuous string of other thoughts about answering what is this? Yeah. So you can get into this kind of endless loop. That's right, yeah. Of what is this? Um, but then what you're saying tonight is, well, at least for uncertainty, you don't know the answer. You, that, my mind's continually bringing mm. you up there. My mind's continually answering that anyway. Um, I, I guess I get getting stuck in this endless loop of thought, whereas if I'm just coming back to the breath, then I, then I just step out of that. Mm-hmm. But I've been asking the question, what is this, coming back to the breath, bringing back into my body, into my dwelling, if you like? Yeah. Whereas what is this is kind of keeping me in the head. Yeah, this is, um, uh, uh, this is a very common experience um, when we start doing this practice. And I think one of the reasons that we go through what you call this, en 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 this en endless loop is because we've been brought up um, in school and pretty much in all situations in our Western life that if we're answered, if we're given a question, we're supposed to come up with an answer. If the teacher asks a question, remember, you used to say, please, sir, please, sir. <laughs> and this is a very deeply ingrained habit. And um, it can be annoying because the mind might have become quite still and quiet and focused on the breath, and etc., which we've become probably good at, so we, we're, we're comfortable there. Um, and that would be one way of somehow short-circuiting that loop. But on the other hand, um, as one persists in this practice, um, we begin to realize that all of our answers that, we, that come up just sort of automatically, are basically inadequate. They're hopeless, really. Uh, even the zeni answers. Uh, often we think we have to come up with some sort of, you know, enigmatic, zen-like kind of comment. 
Uh, and the, the reality is that uh, if you persist in this, uh, this, this discipline of asking what is this, you basically have to burn out that habit. You just have to keep doing it until you give up, <laughs> until you realize this is an impossible question. And actually, what's more, way more interesting than my clever answers is the actual uh, feeling, the physical feeling, what they call the sensation, the physical sensation of puzzlement itself. And that's a sensation that is quite explicitly uh, located in the body. And often in, in, the, in the monastery, we would be told to put the question in your belly. Our teacher once told a particularly recalcitrant Western monk, put the question in the soles of your feet. In other words, um, it does come into the body. And that's the point of it. The point of it is to, is to burn out the loop tape of all my clever answers which might take some time, I'm afraid. Um, it may not happen immediately. Um, but to get to the point where you're actually only interested in the question and the feel and the sensation in your body of the questioning itself, so that it becomes a very uh, physical... Uh, I gave that example, in the 84,000 80, pores of your skin and in the marrow of your bones, it's, now that might seem like a very abstract idea, but um, if you keep at it, I mean, I can't tell in your particular case, but in my case, I found that by keeping at it, and I've, I'm a very intellectual sort of person, so I love coming up with clever answers. Um, you keep at it and you begin, it all begins to fall away. And you begin to experience this doubt or this curiosity or perplexity as something that infuses your mindfulness and your awareness. It gives it that edge, I feel. Um, there's a danger, I think, in just doing mindfulness is that it turns into a kind of a staring at things. You try to look a little bit, you try to eyeball reality a little bit more intensely. Uh, and that, I feel, um, doesn't actually lead very far. Um, by bringing in this quality of, um, of perplexity through the questioning, you somehow animate, I feel, uh, that quality of mindful attention. It becomes somehow vitalized in a strange way. But again, in practice, each of us has to find a way to negotiate this terrain in a way that works and in a way that would be fruitful, say, on a retreat like this. Um, it's un For example, in Korea, they would never, as we've been doing, you know, have you meditate on your breath uh, to stabilize attention. You'd just be thrown straight in the deep end. And that doesn't work for a lot of people. So what Martin and I do is try to find a kind of hybrid where we use mindfulness as traditionally taught in the early texts but introduce into mindfulness this edge of puzzlement and unknowing and making that explicit because I think it's there in mindfulness already. 
actually. But this somehow renders it more explicit. Yeah. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about Heidegger's concepts of Zen. Um, well, work has come out recently. There's a couple of books that have been published that show that Heidegger actually was drawing quite extensively on particularly Taoism and Zen Buddhism. But that was never or very rarely even hinted at in his own writings. But, for example, um, in his later writings, he puts a great deal of emphasis on what he calls das Seinsfrage, the question of being. Arguably, that's his whole project, is to, uh, is to understand what he calls being, whatever that is, uh, as basically a question, and to pursue that question of what it means to be. And at the very end of his essay on technology, there's a lovely phrase that says, um, <clears throat> das Fragen ist die Frömmigkeit des Denkens. I'm probably mispronouncing it. But what it means is that questioning is the piety of... <coughs> questioning is the piety of thought. Uh, so again, it's one of this phrase that's always stayed with me. There's something uh, pious, religious, devout in being able to question in this kind of way. Now, whether Heidegger picked that up from the East or I think more likely drew it out of the Socratic tradition or possibly the pre-Socratic tradition. Uh, I'm not so sure. But certainly he was very drawn particularly to Taoism after the Second World War. He had a bad war. Um, he actually went into retreat with a Chinese scholar and they translated the Tao Te Ching. Um, that was his way of somehow coming to terms with what had gone on. Um, and more and more has come to light that he was actually, to some degree, influenced by East Asian thought. Um, but I found Heidegger's quality of inquiry, particularly in uh, Sein und Zeit, Being and Time, uh, his, his very exacting phenomenological inquiry into the structure of in der Welt sein, being in the world. I found that completely extraordinary, that a person was able to question so systematically and so penetratingly into the very ordinary fabric of human life. Um, he gets a lot of this, of course, from Husserl and others, the whole phenomenological approach. But what I always felt to be lacking not only in Heidegger, but in the phenomenological tradition, was that they didn't really seem to have a, um, a disciplined methodology of practice. And how do you suspend uh, concepts and in, in practice? And I found that the Zen meditation, or just mindfulness practice, seems to provide a method, a systematic method, to pursue, pursue that sort of phenomenological inquiry um, in a much more kind of felt, somatic way. And I think in some respects, uh, that's how I've come to understand Buddhist meditation, is as a phenomenological inquiry. If 
you put it in the language of Western tradition. But an inquiry that's very much embedded in, uh, in, in fairly um, committed, disciplined, contemplative practice. I think we have to stop here. Thank you. We'll start, we'll meet again at um, quarter two for our last sit. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.